You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. I want to say this, and, and um, you know, I did drive a few nails yesterday, but honestly, uh, I didn't do as much work as so many of you did, because uh, I, I have this tendency to get busy talking, um, and I end up doing more talking than working, and that's kind of a weakness I have. And, and so yesterday, I, I just have to tell this on myself, one of the... Uh, one of the guys from Crossroads Missions, uh, I came up to him, started talking to him. He said, are you some, somebody that's important around here? And I said, well, I'm not sure about that. But, And Andrew then was standing there near me, and he said, well, he's our senior guy. And he said, I kind of thought so. And I thought, how, how did you know? And he said, and then I, I kind of leaned in a little bit. I said, it was because I wasn't doing much. And he said, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so I just want you to know I'm grateful for those who did a lot more than I did. Well, what a weekend. And what a weekend for us to honor uh, Mother's, Day, Mother's and Mother's Day. And, and on this weekend, we are launching a four-week series of messages on two impressive mothers who serve as an example of love, faith, and enduring hope in the midst of some very difficult challenges in their life. Interestingly enough, when we meet these two women, neither of them are married or uh, mothers in the traditional sense. And yet they go down in history as two very important mothers that we can learn a great deal from, whether we're mothers or not. Their story is recorded in a small book in the Bible, one that, if we're not careful, we can just miss. But it's power-packed, and it's beautifully written. It's the book of Ruth. Now, this beautifully written book uh, has served for the past 3,000 years as an example of genuine love, uh, raw faith, and enduring hope. Now, preparing for this uh, series of messages. I've been reading an intriguing book that I highly recommend. It's a book written by Paul E. Miller describing the book of Ruth. I love how the author introduced, uh, introduces the book. He, he writes this describing the book of Ruth. He says, I hope the book of Ruth affects you the way a trip to the Grand Canyon might. His comparison continues with these words. As you approach the Grand Canyon, he says, you stop talking as you let it fill your soul. You're silent as your soul expands. You sense that you don't have enough capacity to capture the beauty, the experience of entering and beholding beauty is just too much. As I was reading that, I was struck by this illustration as my wife, Jane, and I have just returned from a vacation where we had a family wedding in Phoenix, and then we spent a few days at the Grand Canyon. And here's a picture of us with this beautiful, beautiful backdrop behind us. 
I jokingly told a few people this weekend that if the Grand Canyon would have been named in our generation, I believe it would have been called the Awesome Canyon. And, and although I took 500 photos of the Grand Canyon, yes, I have some photo issues, but uh, the thing that just really struck me, and, and we're showing a few of the pictures that I took, is that I would, would just marvel at the beauty of the Grand Canyon. I would take a photo, and then I would look at the digital copy on my iPhone, and I thought, it doesn't do justice to what I'm looking at right now. And even though I think some of these photos turned out pretty good, it, it just... It's really, truly breathtaking. This was a picture we took at sunrise, and, and Jay and I got up about 4 a.m. just so that we could see the sunrise there at the Grand Canyon because it was, it was beautiful. And the previous night on sunset, uh, we walked out after uh, having a meal there near the Grand Canyon. We walked out and saw the site, and, and it was really, really interesting because it was almost as if People were at church. Now, I'm not saying that because they arrived late. I'm saying that I couldn't resist. I'm saying that because they were so silent and respectful. And even there was this sense of reverence that what we were taking in was truly a beautiful work of God. And while we were taking in the sight of the sunset, uh, Jane read Psalm 104. And then we played from her iPhone the song that we've sung here quite often, So Will I. And by the way, if you want to clear a spot on the Grand Canyon, read Scripture out loud and play a worship song. Because after all that, you know, we had that whole area to ourselves. I appreciate my wife's boldness, but it was, it was beautiful, and we thought, wow, if the rocks cry out, so will I at the wonder of God's creation. The more we stared at this God-made marvel, the more we were drawn to it. On our last day at the Grand Canyon, we took a mile and a half hike down the canyon. And yet, what I didn't realize is that, unfortunately, if you walk that far down, you've got to walk that back up. We didn't make it the seven-mile hike down to to the Colorado River, but it was truly something that was a beauty that just drew us in. My hope is that over the next four weeks, as we seek to take in the beauty of the book of Ruth, that you will not only read the story on your own, it's a short book, you could, you could set aside probably a half hour less and read the entire book in one setting, but that you will also be drawn into the story, and that more importantly, you'll be drawn into the God who it points to. As beautiful as this story is, it actually begins by developing a tragic development in the lives of a a particular family, which led them to travel, or for our notes purposes, sojourn to the distant country of Moab. 
Now, as we so often see in the midst of tragedy, it's in that sense of tragedy that real, genuine, authentic hope is born. So let's read about the specific task that this family faced as they endured some tragedy in their life, and yet in the midst of that, God did enter the picture. So as we read about that in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Now, there are many names and places mentioned in this introduction of the book, and let's briefly make a few observations. First of all, this couple, Elimelech and Naomi, were from Bethlehem, a city that we've heard of, a a town actually, and yet the setting of this story is more than a thousand years before Jesus would be born in that town of Bethlehem, which is a town southwest of Jerusalem. In the very first verse of this book, we're told that there is a severe famine in the land. In light of this famine, Elimelech and Naomi travel with their two sons to a foreign country of Moab. Moab was the land east of the Jordan River in what today is the country of Jordan. Moab had an interesting history, and we won't have take time to develop it, but But needless to say, the people of Moab had a a common ancestry with the people of Israel. Their lineage goes back uh, through Abraham, or at least Abraham's dad. And one author described them as Israel's hillbilly cousins. And in many ways, if you go back and read the history, that truly is a good way to describe them. And yet, Although they had this common ancestry to Abraham, they, they, the people of Moab had developed their own customs and their own religion, and they worshiped a god, other gods, rather than the God of Israel, the God that the Bible describes, the God that we know most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. So Elimelech and Naomi take their young sons into a foreign country that doesn't have the same values and and the same belief system that they had embraced as a people. And what began as a sojourn, as translated from the New American Standard Bible, which by the word, that word sojourn, we don't use that word a lot today, but, but the word means a temporary travel. But what begins as a temporary just escape from the famine to find relief, we find that it ends up 
in verse 2 that they settled in Moab. It appears that they became comfortable living among their hillbilly cousins, a group of people who didn't worship the God that they did. And evidence of that is that we see even their sons end up marrying Moabite women. I think there's some things for us to take to heart here. You see, the Bible challenges those of us that have come to put our faith in Jesus Christ, those of us who've identified ourselves as followers of Jesus. The Bible challenges us to be a people who view themselves as sojourners in this world, to not, to not view this world as our home, as our, as our place to settle, but to understand that as followers of Jesus that we belong to God's kingdom and that our citizenship is in heaven. And so because of that, we're, we're taught to, to be a people that have distinct values and a distinct faith and that we live that faith out in real ways. Now, there are some groups that have taken those teachings of the Bible to, to kind of remove themselves from culture. I don't believe that's what the Bible's describing when it describes us being sojourners. I believe instead the Bible calls us to march to a different drummer and yet at the same time still live within the culture that we live and make it positive influence. That's why we as a church have embraced our vision statement to be a church that's really serious about bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. So I believe that we can live within this world without becoming like all the people of this world that don't share the same values and practices of faith that the Bible describes. Now also, as just like the family in this text, as you see, they settled, and I think that that led to some problems, but But just like this family, our faith and our confidence in God is truly tested in the midst of challenge and tragedy. You see, we have to ask ourselves, when we face tragedy in our life, do we run away from God, looking for other things to give us relief? Or do we run toward God, knowing that He is our only real hope? and sense of security. Now, to make matters worse for this family, the tragedy deepens when we learn that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow. And then about 10 years later, both sons, who interestingly enough, their names translate and mean sickly and frail. Okay? That was the name of their meaning. By the way, I wouldn't suggest you name your kids their names. And yet, Naomi is left, as a result of that, all alone, or as one version reads, bereft, bereaving, and left alone, without a husband or a son. Now, in our 21st century minds, that's tough. But when we really try to understand the the Jewish culture of this day, approximately 1100 B.C., we come to see that Naomi is in real trouble because she lives in a culture that women didn't work, so there wasn't going to be a means for her 
to make a living. And she finds herself without a husband or without a son to provide for. And not only that, but now she has the responsibility to provide for these two young women that have become part of her family that now she is taking care of. Yet in the midst of this tragedy, a beautiful relationship forms in which we see the benefit of having traveling partners as we go through life's journey. And in the midst of, of this journey, we find these traveling partners point each other toward God and to live out the loving kindness that only God can provide. And they demonstrate that loving kindness toward one another. To see that, let's keep reading in, in verse 6. It says, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughter-in-laws, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back to your mother's home, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, let's make some observations. I know that was a long reading, but I think it's a powerful reading. Let's make some observations. First of all, I think that Naomi is drawing some false conclusions here. Personally, I don't believe that God has raised his fist against Naomi. In fact, I believe God's at work, and he's orchestrating a plan that she just doesn't have a sense of yet. So, you see, sometimes the Bible records faulty theology and faulty understanding that people have, not necessarily saying that it's true. It's just that's how they felt. And sometimes I think that can be true for us too, right? We can go through a difficult time in life, and we can start thinking, well, God has forsaken me or God has forgotten me. But the truth of it is, God very well could be working behind the scenes in ways that we can't yet see. And that's where real trust and real hope kicks in. You see, Naomi, whose name means sweetie, interesting enough, is now experiencing the bitterness of life. And it's in the midst of this difficulty in her life that she truly serves as an example of endurance. As one author said, 
She is an example of hanging in there, literally putting one foot in front of the other as she heads back home. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but maybe you've been going through a tough time. Maybe you can take heart from Naomi. And maybe what you need to do right now is just trust that God's going to be at work. God's going to show up, even though you can't see how he's going to yet. I mean, things are looking pretty bleak for Naomi, but she keeps trusting, okay, if I just move my way back toward God and God's people, God's going to somehow show up. She also serves as a clear example of, of someone who is facing the challenge of living alone. And yet, in spite of her aloneness, she demonstrates a hope in God that prevents her from becoming selfish in her focus. But instead, she continues to look to the interests of others by showing genuine love and and concern for the welfare of others. You almost get the feeling as, as they're walking back to Judah, it hits her. What am I doing? I'm putting these daughter-in-laws in in jeopardy of of living a life alone as well. And and she really shows tremendous love and selflessness by encouraging them and pointing them and saying, why don't you go back to your home? And in the midst of them, she also points them to the Lord so that they won't lose heart in the midst of their own loss. In in the New International Version, verse 8 reads this way, May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. It's interesting that she points her daughter-in-laws to the kindness of the Lord that will lead to reward and security in their life. Now, the translation uh, here in the NIV specifically talks about the Lord's Kindness. And the word kindness there in the Hebrew is this Hebrew word hesed, which can be translated as loving kindness or covenantal love. It's a love that's based not on emotion or feeling, but it's based on commitment. Not only does Naomi point them to the loving kindness of God, but she models it for them. Now, at first glance, Naomi's reasoning with her daughter-in-laws might seem odd to us, but you see, in the Old Testament, the Jewish law, there was a provision for young widows to be taken care of by the family of her husband. The brother of the deceased husband had a responsibility to take that, that woman, that widow, as a wife and to provide care and security for her. Naomi explains to to her daughter-in-laws that she has no other sons to provide for them. And so in their own interest, she tries to persuade them to go back to their homeland so that they can remarry and find happiness and lasting security. Now next week, we're going to see that Naomi wasn't perfect in her faith that she struggled to make sense of what was happening into her life. And we're going to look next week of how we can learn from that faith struggle that she went through. And yet I think it's interesting, in the midst of the uncertainty that she faced, she continues to demonstrate genuine love and concern for these two young women. You see, Naomi undoubtedly was in her 40s or possibly 50s, and she is pleading with these women probably in their 20s for them to be concerned about 
their own welfare, even if that meant that she would be all alone. What a marvelous impact Naomi had on these two daughter-in-laws. And on this Mother's Day, it's important for us to acknowledge the lasting impact of a mother's love for children. Moms, grandmas, mother-in-laws, or mentors, never underestimate the influence that you can have on those who are looking to you for love, security, wise advice, and example. You know, earlier this year, we recognized the passing of Billy Graham. And yet, it's noteworthy to reflect on who he acknowledged had the greatest influence on his life. And going back and researching for this message, I found this quote from Billy Graham. He said, of all the people I've ever known, his mother, that's who he's talking about here, she had the greatest influence on me. I'm sure one reason that the Lord has directed and safeguarded me through the years was the prayers of my mother and father. Moms, never quit pouring Jesus into the hearts of your children, even if they're adult children. Never quit pouring Jesus and his words into the lives of people you can influence. For those of you who there aren't able to be mothers, then ask yourself, who can you pour Jesus into so that you can have a lasting influence as well? In our reading of the book of Ruth, we can see the far-reaching impact that Naomi has in her daughter-in-laws as they demonstrate an amazing loyalty to her. Both of them insist that they want to stay with her to help take care of her. The reader has to ask, why? Could it be that, that they, we are seeing not just one isolated case of selfless love, but simply one example of consistent selfless love that Naomi had shown them over the past 10 years? We also see that Naomi not only modeled God's loving kindness, but she influenced them to put their hope in the God of Israel. You see, the Jewish people were bold enough to believe that their God simply wasn't one of many gods, but he was the one and only true God that was not contained by the borders of one nation. He was the creator of all people. We'll see this as we keep reading, that Naomi had also planted seeds of faith that had grown in the hearts of at least one of the two daughter-in-laws, Ruth the person who the book is named after. Let's pick up the reading in verse 14. It says, Again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. And then in verse 16, we get the most memorable quote from this book. Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. What an amazing response to the loving kindness that Ruth demonstrates. 
to Naomi's love. This is a Bible passage that, that sometimes is cited at weddings, and, and maybe appropriately so, but, but it's, it's an actuality. The reference for this is the loyalty and devotion between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. Unfortunately, in-laws aren't always viewed or treated that way in our culture. But what a love and devotion Ruth has for Naomi. It's an unexpected response by Ruth on, on the heels of Orpah's decision to return to Moab. There's no question it would have been better from a human perspective for Ruth to return to her homeland like her sister. The chances of remarriage appeared to be much greater in her homeland instead of traveling to this distant land where she would always probably be viewed as an inferior hillbilly cousin. And yet, in a sense, Ruth responds to, to Naomi's selfless loving kindness with a similar selfless loving kindness. It's a steadfast covenantal love. As one author described, it's a love without an exit strategy. Now, here's the question that I have for myself, and here's the question that I have for you as we close up our message today. What would happen if we learned to love others with this kind of love? What would happen in our marriages if we learned to love our spouses, not asking ourselves, what am I getting out of this marriage, but instead, what am I giving to this marriage? What would happen in our relationship with our children and grandchildren if we learned to love in this way, a love that doesn't have its, as its goal to be liked, to become that child's best friend, but, but a love that asks, what's best for this child in the long run? What would happen in our church family if we learned to love each other in this way? Instead of attending church, asking ourselves, what am I getting out of church? What if we approach church by saying, what am I giving to the church? What if we came to worship services not asking ourselves, who's going to reach out to me, but instead ask ourselves, who can I reach out to? Who could I initiate selfless love? and concern for others. You know, two weeks ago, I gave the challenge for us to grow in our friendliness as a church and to make sure that each weekend that we all intentionally reach out and meet someone new that we've not met before. How's that going? For some of you, you maybe say, hey, that's just easy for me. Maybe you could meet two or three new people every week. You see, that kind of love will just truly be contagious. Well, observation from this weekend, from this past weekend with Help Building Hope, I noticed yesterday as I walked around not doing much work, but there was a lot of joy out here. Why? Because we were serving others, not thinking about ourselves. That's where there's real joy. That's where there's real meaning. Well, as we close out, this first chapter, we see them take a return trip to Bethlehem as we see hope revisited. In verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited 
by their arrival. We'll pick it up there next week. But in so many ways, this covenantal love demonstrated between Naomi and Ruth points to another one who would later come from Bethlehem. And we discover in the coming weeks that as we keep reading from the book of Ruth that that Naomi and Ruth actually, actually end up becoming part of the genealogy that leads to Jesus being later born a thousand years later in Bethlehem. And it all began with their faith and trust in God. You know, we're going to close out our time of worship today with communion as we always do. You know, there are some that say that if you take communion every week that it'll lose its specialness. Well, I disagree. I believe that communion, although it's a simple act as we pass pieces of bread and pass cups of juice, that if we'll really spend the time to reflect and ponder and really marvel at the love, the loving kindness of the one who truly was selfless, who gave up heaven and came to earth so that so that he could die for us, so that we could have enduring hope. If we think about how that he had nothing to gain from leaving heaven, he had everything to lose, but he was willing to do that for you, for me. What an amazing love. You see, we started with an illustration of the, the Grand Canyon. I wanted to close with it. The longer that Jay and I stared at the Grand Canyon, the more we were drawn to it. We just marveled at it. In fact, we just caught ourselves staring at it. We just, we just didn't grow tired of reflecting on the beauty that we saw there, the amazement, marveling at God's creation. In fact, if we didn't have a train and a plane to catch, we might still be there. But the more we... We thought and reflected the more we were drawn in. I think that's what happens in communion. The more we reflect on God's love in Jesus Christ, the more we're drawn in. And let's allow this time of community to, to really reflect on how much Jesus loves us. And let's allow that, draw our heart to Him. And let's ask ourselves, are we responding with a like sacrificial love and loving kindness toward others. Let's allow this to be a time of wonder, time of amazement, time of reflection and examination. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your love of sending your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to give up heaven and come here and die for us. We can't even get our minds wrapped around how tough that was for you. And yet we're drawn in by your amazing love. Draw us in a little deeper during this time of communion. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., 
Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.